Open your Bibles, if you will, to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Let's read together. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by majestic glory. He's talking about when, when he was baptized by, by John in the river. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, I just, man, this verse is so powerful I, that we realize when we meet together, it's not just by our own will, but by the movement of your Holy Spirit, God, that we have nothing to offer you here this morning. We are completely reliant on your power moving in and through our hearts here, God, this morning. And so expose us, God. Challenge us here this morning to, to walk away with a greater understanding and idea and thought of, man, everything that you are, God, and that this is true, this is real, these eyewitnesses, these things, these accounts, they're true for us, God. We love you, and we praise you, this name of Jesus, amen? This is, I'm going to be honest with you all, this is a sermon that I did uh, back in 2018, and so I've done this, similar, and so those of you uh, who have been here a while, this is going to sound familiar to you, but frankly, this is one of those sermons, uh, kind of like our, our strategy sermons and our vision sermons, that, that I like to keep in front of us every now and then. Because to me, this is, this is just so wildly critical, it was also profoundly impactful to me as, as, I, as I was digging through a lot of this stuff in my own discovery. Uh, and, and, and frankly, this is also one of those sermons that changes because the world is a dynamic thing that changes uh, and we are constantly discovering more things about, about, our, about our faith, about, about the history and, and, and uh, um, I was going to say architecture, archaeology. And well, that's, I, never mind. Uh, we have no time for tangents uh, this morning. But, uh, but and so, and so this is one of those things that I just... I just want us to know. Frankly, I want your students to know this more than anything. I feel like if this was one of those things that I had walking into college or the, or the halls of my high school, I would have been like, what? Uh, this is insane. Like, I never knew this stuff. Uh, and, so, and so I'm going to put this before us here, here this morning. And so let me ask you a question here in verse 16 when it says that we do not follow cleverly devised myths. How do we know that? How do we know we're not just in here following some myth thing? And maybe that's where you land and you're like, I don't know, I got drug in here and, and whatever. 
And this whole thing is some interesting idea that some people conjured up, right? How do we know that when Peter says we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed? How do we know? How do we know that? In Dewey? Do we have a prophetic word when we're opening up the scriptures? In verse 20, he says, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Can I have confidence that over the last 2,000 years, that of the, of the 31,000 verses that are in the scriptures, that they haven't been all mixed up somehow and subject to some scribe's interpretation over the years? Is the gospel account of what I read today of this Messiah named Jesus, the original intention of what they were writing back then? Or is, or is our faith something more, or, 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 or our reading of the scripture, something more like this? Let's see if it works. Is it working, the video? No? You, here we go, yeah. Oh, look at this poor guy, look at him. He's like, no, I got this. Just wait for it to slow down. This isn't slowing down. Oh, here I go. Here I go. That's special. Yeah. Right? Right, like, like it starts off, oh, I think I have some control over this, but man, over 2,000 years, man, this whole Bible thing has just spun out of control, and now there's like deity of Jesus and all this stuff. How do we know that that's not what's happened? I mean, Jesus lived in the first century, and we're in the 21st. That's a lot of like centuries in between. And didn't Constantine in the 4th century change it all anyways to make it say what he wanted it to say? Right? And then King James got a hold of it. And, I mean, man, what is going on here? Can I have the confidence that I have the actual words that Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, that, that this is what they were actually writing, what they were actually intending, what they were actually seeing? Is what they were writing the same Bible of 2022? Can you trust your Bible a good question. It's an important question that requires important work. And it's a conversation that has gained a lot of popularity in the last 30 years with talk shows like Bill Maher and The Colbert Report uh, and Jon Stewart and things like this and a slew of other online blogs and tweets now, right, that bring criticism overall to the sacred text, right? Dan Brown in The Da Vinci Code says, the Bible has evolved through countless translations, editions, revisions. History has never had a definitive version of this book. People read that and they're like, oh my gosh, I never knew that. He doesn't either, because <laughs> he wrote it in a fiction book. I mean, uh, 150 years before Constantine ever even met right with the council, we had a definitive, full writing of the scriptures. The Colbert Report on The Daily Show will say this. Bart Ehrman, who's a textual critic, very, very famous uh, textual critic, atheist, he wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus. He went on these, all these shows many times, and he's saying, not only do we not have the original copies of the scriptures, we do not have the copies of those originals. And we don't have the first copies of those. We don't have the copies of the copies. In fact, we don't have the copies of the copies of the copies. And he'll say this, that we have more textual variants. This means that, right, you take one ancient text and you put it up next to another and, oh, they, they, change, they change this over here. That's not the same over here. A spelling error, you name it. Every single error, anytime there's anything, anything different, they count all of those, right? He says, we have more of these errors 
then we have words in the New Testament. There's over 140,000 words in the New Testament. And the audience will laugh, <laughs> silly Christians, how can you believe this stuff? And let me tell you this, those two statements are true. In fact, we have over 400,000 variants when you put our ancient texts next to each other. Right? So what do we do with that? I pray out, I say amen, and we go watch the Super Bowl, I guess. Right? Well, you have two extremes, and I don't want to land on either one of these. One of them is you land where these guys like Bart Ehrman land, which is just total despair. We can't know, so we don't, and, and that's just where we live. There's no hope. I can't, I, can't, I can't make sense of all this stuff. Or you land over here, which is the kind of the ignorant blindness of, well, the King James was good enough for Jesus, so it's good enough for me. You know, and, and you do no hard work of intellectually entering into these spaces. And this isn't, we don't want either of these. We want to enter this so that we have a, so that we have a foundation, so we have clarity on these things. And so this morning, what I want to see is I want to see what these guys have to say does not mean that we have despair, but that we have a great hope, <laughs> but that we have a great hope when we apply these scriptures. Uh, and so I'm going to cover three, three issues. We have a quantity of issues. We have a quality of issues and a significance of these issues. This is going to feel a little bit like class. You're like, man, uh, but I think you'll enjoy this, right? There's three, three things we're breaking through here. What, what are the quantity of these issues? What is the quality of these issues? And what's the significance of these issues? And FYI, most of my research today comes from a guy uh, named Dr. Dan Wallace. Dr. Dan Wallace. Doesn't that look like a guy who probably studied this stuff, right? You're like, yeah, you're a nerd, right? Um, uh, is right. So he is the, one of the leading Greek New Testament scholars of our era. Uh, he's actually, in a lot of these shows, the guy that's pitted up against Bart Ehrman uh, and Brad Metzer and these other guys uh, uh, to talk about. He's the professor at DTS. Uh, he, wrote a, he, he wrote Beyond the Basics of Biblical Greek. That's a book he wrote. His, his doctoral, his, his dissertation was on the indefinite article, which is the word, the. That was his dissertation, all right? Uh, that's what he did. He's the founder of New and Expositional Revisions to Documents and Scripture, which makes him the president of nerds. Yeah. Um, that's this dude. I'm just kidding. He did not. That's not the group. He is, he is the director of something. It's called the Center of Study of New Testament Manuscripts. Uh, but people like this go through ancient manuscripts, and they count every time there's a variant from one manuscript to another. They count every single one of them. Every single one of them. These guys are colossal nerds. Uh, and we are so thankful for them because they do a very important work for us that then guys like me uh, just get to kind of summarize for us. Uh, but it's a good work. So first, quantity. First question, do we have the original texts? No, of course we don't. Uh, it was written on papyrus. It wouldn't have survived. And I was like, if only I had papyrus. And I do, because my mom gave me some last time she went to Egypt. All right. And so, uh, and so this is papyrus. This is what the original uh, mostly was written on was this stuff. All right. It's like, can you hear that? This stuff is brittle. It's made of like reeds. It cracks. I mean, this is only a few years old, and it's already like cracking and fraying at the sides and, and probably wouldn't last very long, but this is what it was written on. It was written on stuff like this. Kids, if you want to come up and feel a layer, you, you can and take a look at that, but uh, it was written on papyrus, 
It was brittle. It was tough to work with. People copied the text many, many times because they knew that. They knew it wouldn't last, and so they, would kept on th- they just were always in process of copying and rewriting another copy of the Scriptures. And so little variance did occur. As Bart Ehrman says, we have more variance than words, areas where they don't agree, right? 138 words in the New Testament. How do we know that, nerds, right? There's 400,000 variants. And how do we know that, nerds, right? 2.5 variants per word in the New Testament. And this is where Bart Ehrman will stop. But here's where he doesn't tell you, how do we get these variants, how do we get all these mistakes? How do we know? So I don't have what they meant there because all these mistakes that keep on happening, keep on happening, keep on happening. Well, how do you get variants? You have to have something to compare it to. If you only have one copy, then you have zero variants. The fact that we have so many variants is because we have so many ancient texts. We have what Dan Wallace calls an embarrassment of riches. If you don't have a lot of variants, that means you don't have a lot of stuff to compare it to. I'll give you a quick analysis, right? What about from that era and that time, ancient Roman, ancient Greek historians and what they were writing? What do we, well, let's compare it to like a Tacitus, a Livy, a, a Herodotus, a Thucydides, you know, like all these people. Where do they all land? And I'm going to just burn through this real quick just so that you have an idea right? Livy, uh, Livy and Tacitus and Caesar, all three Roman historians, uh, and uh, the number of copies for Livy, 150. A number of copies for Tacitus, 31, 251 for Caesar, and, uh, and for Livy, the, the, the closest work we have to him of, of like the first work we have from his era is from 400 years after he wrote it. The first one we have from Tacitus was written 800 years after he first penned his historical accounts of Roman history. Caesar, 950 years after his original, right? So they have that many accounts written, and that's when we first have them, right? And then let's take the Greek guys, Thucydides, about 96 copies of his, of ancient, of ancient manuscripts, right? And that's the closest one we have, about 200 years after he wrote those. Uh, Herodotus, 100 copies, written thir- in the closest one we have to his works, 1,350 years when we have our first, our oldest manuscript from, from Herodotus. Sophocles is very similar, 193 copies. We have a, a little bit more of him, 103, 193 ancient manuscripts of, of Sophocles. Plato, we have 210 of his ancient, of ancient manuscripts written another 1,300 years after. Same with Sophocles, 1,300 years. So 1,300 years, of that's the first work we have of theirs, 1,300 years after they wrote it. So that's an average of, of about 900 years. If you take all the Greek and Roman historians of these seven, these are like the seven most popular, but if you take all of them, it gets, the numbers do not work in their favor. It gets way worse. It averages out to about 20 copies of original work written at least 500 years after. Only a few have, we only have a few that come within 500 years after these people actually meant to write it. Are y'all following? Y'all tracking with that? Okay. And these are the most prolific so it's an average of about 150 copies of an ancient work of, of, of these people uh, written about 900 years after they wrote it or when we have their first copies. So what about the Bible? 5,800 copies in ancient manuscripts. 
of ancient texts. Did y'all hear that? 5,800. And that's just the Greek. There are another 10,000 ancient manuscripts in Latin. There are another 10,000 manuscripts written in other ancient languages such as Coptic and, and uh, uh, Syrian and, uh, gosh, there's, there's a ton of others, uh, Slavic and, and many, in, in many Hebrew, right, and Aramaic, an additional 10,000. So that means about 25,000 copies of ancient texts of our biblical New Testament. So... How much do we have? There's a theological term for it, bunches. (laughs) We have so much, y'all. There's tons of it, all right? And if you are a pie chart guy or a pie chart girl, this is what it would look like if you compared the biblical texts to all of the ancient Roman and Greek texts. How do you think we're doing? 4% of all ancient manuscripts then from that that Roman Greek era versus the 96% that is of New Testament. Uh, Or it would be if I stacked them up next to each other, if I had all all of the Greek and Roman uh, stuff stacked up, if I could stack it all up, all their ancient manuscripts, it'd be about as tall as I am, which is pretty impressive. If you were to stack up the New Testament manuscripts, you would have to walk from here to Sunset Canyon. That's what we're dealing with here. Now, why does this matter, right? And, and, and from a date perspective, that's great. Well, what about dates? We have some manuscripts that date as far back as 80 AD. Did y'all hear that? 80 AD. So we have writings from the apostles from about the time of, I don't know, the apostles! And 18 of our significant manuscripts, 18, 18 of our significant manuscripts come from years 140 to 180 A.D. And here's what I don't get. No one questions Roman or Greek history. But everyone wants to question what the apostles were writing. No one questions the authority of Roman history. There's like, yeah, that's what it was like. Yeah, that's totally what it was. But then they read biblical history and they're like, no, nah, I don't think so. Versus 25,000 copies from numerous authors, books on the Bible, on accounts from that same century. Some of which date decades after original texts. In some cases are corroborated by anti-Christian historians like Tacitus, Right? They're authored by eyewitnesses, but uh, I don't know about that. What? And it's not that I'm saying that you're wrong if you don't think that these are the actual true words of the apostles. It's that the evidence is telling you that it is not scientifically practical to believe that. It is not reasonable scientifically to believe that these are not the real words of Peter, of James, of John. It doesn't make sense for you to believe that from a statistical standpoint. 
Your King James Version of the Bible was written back in 1611, and it used anywhere from 10 to 13, no, sorry, 7, I'm thinking of a different uh, manuscript, it used 7 ancient Greek manuscripts, 7, in 1610s when that was written, in the 12th century. Uh, and, uh, and those manuscripts of the Greek ones were dated only as far back as the 12th century, right? And so your modern translation is built with over a thousand times more manuscripts dating as far back as the second century. You tell me, are we getting farther away from what the apostles were saying? Or are we getting closer to it? Closer to the words of Peter saying, where else would I go, Jesus? You have the words of eternal life. This is what we're getting closer to. So that's quantity of issues, all right? Let's talk about quality real quick, but what about the issues? Because some of them, they have to be big, right? Well, we're gonna cover four of these real quick. Uh, what is the quality of the variants that we're talking about? Because some of you are still freaking out. You're like, yeah, you said 400,000. I need you to deal with that. Um, and so let's deal with it real quick. The first one is this, uh, the, the spelling errors. When there's, and, and some of those spelling errors, it's just, right? Like if you're reading some, you know, some British greeting card or something, and it says something about color or honor, right? It's going to have a little U in there because that's the way they are over there, right? And so you're going to have some spelling errors like this or the way they spell John. Sometimes they would add an extra N onto John. Well, that's a variant. That gets counted. There's a U in there. This can't be true, right? And so we count all of those. Uh, that's, and this, this kind of error accounts for 70% of that 400,000. But Bart Ehrman doesn't tell you that. Why doesn't he tell you that? Wives, is the husband you're sitting next to the same man he was when you were dating him? See, they're not nodding because they're like, uh, you know, I'm seeing, I'm seeing some elbows. I saw that, right? <laughs> no, why? Because when y'all were dating, he was like, oh man, what's up? Tell me more. What? Right? He was, he was, like, he was like attending to your needs, right? He cared about the recesses of your heart, right? He was like, he was all about, he was opening the door, right? Like, he doesn't do any of that now. Like, you didn't know at the time that you were marrying something very different, right? Now he's trying to get you to buy into this version of, you, of him, right? He believes that he's just, he's just trapped you into this non-toilet seat raisin, you know, nacho eaten thing, right? And, and that's what he is, just the dirty dish world that he's invited you into, and you didn't know. But you, you brought this on yourself, though, ladies, because shame on you. You thought someone like this had the tools to minister to the deep recesses of your heart. Like, what were you thinking? This is your fault. Uh, this is on you. Look at us. Look at, look at you, Luke, all right? Like, you don't have the tools, man, right? But Blythe, you thought he had them. You thought he had them. He is cute. I get it, right? But, but you did that. And this is the deal, right? This is Bart Ehrman. He knows that that doesn't sell to tell you the truth about these errors. But that's what the truth is. 70% are these meaningless spelling errors. Now, other uh, errors, linguistic alterations. So uh, that, that can't be translated, right? Because Greek is an inflective language, and word order doesn't matter in Greek. Uh, and, so, uh, and so you could have something like this. It says, for God so loved the world. Or it could say, so the world loved for God. The world loved God for so. You could all, any Greek manuscript could say this and it'd be saying the same thing because someone reading it would see where the participle is and all this stuff and all the work of Dan Wallace, bless his heart, right? We'd be able to see. But anytime there's a shift in those word orders, because Greek allows for that based off of endings and word stuff and all that fun stuff in uh, <coughs> tenses, then, then you would know where it's supposed to be landing. But, but anytime there's a shift in that, 
Well, that's a variant, that's a variant, that's a variant. And they don't even get, they're not even translatable. So that's another big one. Let's go to the third one. Meaningful, this is a meaningful variant, but it's not viable. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7 says this, We were gentle among you. Now, if you're reading your Bible, sometimes there will be a little note over gentle. Uh, that's because it could also be translated as, in some ancient manuscripts, there is also the word children. We were like children among you. Well, how did we get that? Well, gentle is apioi, and children is, is hapioi. You see the difference? No, of course you don't. Like, maybe a little H there, maybe, I don't know. Uh, so it's nap- napioi, and so you have apioi, napioi, ugunathane, right? Ugunathane, uh, came among you. And so... Uh, there's a 14th century manuscript that says, Ugunathang Hippioi, which says, we were like horses among you. Uh, this is a meaningful variant, but it is not viable. We obviously know that it was just a mistake, right? Uh, and no other manuscript that they're corroborating against, but that becomes a significant issue, right, uh, from some of these people. So we see that's a meaningful variant, but not a viable variant, because uh, we know that that's not what they were trying to say. And the word is napioi, hippioi, right? And if you look at, right, some people's H's look like N's anyways, right? Because they would just take, all they did was take that H and they cut off the top of it and it made it look like an N. And they're like, oh, Jesus can't have risen from the dead because it says horses. I mean, do you see that? I mean, that's the argument some of these people are making. And that's the risk that some of them take. I mean, what a shame. That one text back there says this and, I'm more than that. These make up for 99% of what I've just covered with you. That is 99% of that 400,000. Y'all breathe. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> right. So let's talk about the other 1%. Let's talk about meaningful and viable. Let's deal with that real quick. Meaningful and viable. Revelation 13. Let the one who has insight calculate the number of the beast. For it's the number of a man and his number is... 666. You're wrong! We found a manuscript in, uh, well, not a manuscript, a copy from the 1800s that said uh, the mark of the beast, and it said 616. And then we looked back at a super ancient manuscript, and it also said 616, which is really unfortunate for this guy. (laughs) Bless his heart. You just have some random number on your eyebrow, bro. Uh, Doesn't he kind of look like Dan Wallace a little bit, our other guy? They should get together and hang out. That'd be fruitful, Um, (laughs) right? So just like, just years of Hollywood doomsday, you know, videos just down the tubes. I don't know what Arnold Schwarzenegger is going to have to make a new movie. I don't know. So, dun, 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 what do we do with this? Well, here's the deal. When's the last time you went to a church and they got up and maybe they said a creed and they said, I believe in God. The Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who's conceived by the Holy Spirit, and the number of the beast is 666. It is not core theology. It just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The discrepancy in changes says nothing about what we preach or what we believe, regardless of that number. And do these textual... Did I skip a page? It changes nothing about what we preach or what we believe. I mean, these, the, the significant issues there. Right? And so there's some other significant issues that can be explained, such as, well, this, this account says that there were 4,000 people there. This one says that there were 5,000. Well, the, the ways that people counted, you know, were different. It doesn't mean that there was a different number. 
It's just you have different eyewitnesses looking through different lenses. That's not saying a different truth. It's giving you a different version of the same thing that's happening, right? Or sometimes in order of how they went. Well, some people wrote, back in the, I, don't know, I wish I had time. I'm not going to go there, though. But that's a, whole, that's a whole other thing. All right, significance of issues. So we talked about quality of issues. We talked about quantity of issues. Let's talk about the significance of these. So what does it mean? Like, what is the significance of these issues? Uh, do these textual issues affect any of the core beliefs of the Christian church? Dan Brown of the Da Vinci Code would say that Constantine changed the Bible before the Council of Nicaea to reflect that Jesus was God, even though his followers did not actually think he was God. Well, I've already told you why some of that is bogus, right? We had a full version of the scriptures uh, over 150 years before the Council of Nicaea even happened. Also, the Council of Nicaea came together not to... They didn't even canonize scripture at the Council of Nicaea. That happened what, like... That happened... Oh my gosh, uh, 1,200 years later in the Council of Trent. So this happened, this happened in around 300 or so AD. The Council of Nicaea, they came together because there was a, a heretical teaching coming out called Arianism, which said that Jesus was not equal with the Father. And so Constantine got the council together, all the bishops said, we have to talk about this. And that's all the council did. They came together and they said, no, Jesus is equal with the Father, begotten of. They didn't, God did not create Jesus. They were co-heirs, they are co-creators, they are, they are part of the triune spirit. They were all together. We don't have a whole sermon for Trinity, but that's what the whole council was coming together. It was, it was to canonize some faith issues, not scripture. So Dan Brown's like, but, but Dan Brown doesn't care. He wasn't trying to say anything true. He was just a fictional writer. The problem is, we read things like that. We have a shaky faith. We don't hear things like this. And then the next thing you know, we have generations after us that don't believe the scriptures. Which is why I'm passionate about sermons like this. We have to know what we're looking at. The gem that we have when we open up these pages. We have this... Uh, we have this, too, to corroborate all this. This is a, a little they, uh, papyrus. They, it, to label them, they call them P, and then they have a little number. So this is P66. Um, this is P66. This is from about 150 AD. Uh, there are some others that, like I said, date before that. But uh, let's all read this together, if you will, with me real quick. Um, this is from John. This is the first chapter of John. Well, what does the first chapter of John say? Right? It says this, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This was written like 150 years before Constantine got that whole group together. Do you think that, do you think that Constantine invented the deity of Jesus? Absolutely not. These are the disciples writing these things down. This is, this is just decades after they penned it attestations of who Jesus is. Conclusion. Do I believe in Jesus? <laughs> of course I do. But can I tell you, it's not because we have the true and inerrant word of God in all of our Bibles. This is a valuable work. But my faith in Jesus comes from things I've seen him do in my life. Because over 15 years ago, God grabbed a wandering heart in the parking lot of Bowie High School, of me talking with a friend. And I was working out some things of faith, and man, he just put me on firm ground, and I just, man, I caught on fire for the Lord. Got a calling in my own life to serve him. And I experienced the God who leaves the 99 and pursues the one. Man, I'm not felt that word to be true in my life. 
Then years after, in my own arrogance and deceit and horrible decisions that had left me lonely, broken, frankly, beyond repair, so I thought, man, I felt Jesus pick up these pieces, mend what I thought could not be mended, restore what these locusts had eaten in my life, and I had read Romans 8, that we are more than conquerors, that there's nothing I could do to separate his love from me, and I experienced this to be true. He made a deceiver into a disciple. And so while these, while these things and these matters and these words are true, it is also truly, effectively working in the hearts and lives of men and women. And when I thought that I should never be trusted with another person's heart, let alone a wife, he gave me Sarah. And then he gave me Liv. And if you haven't noticed, we have a little junior on the way. And the Lord is good. And that's not just a sign of his goodness, right? Because everyone's family looks a little different. We've all had to endure different things. And even before that, even before Liv, man, we knew that God was good and he was with us. And so, yes, we do do well to remember these words, as Peter said, that we do have a prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place. And, oh, it's a dark place, y'all. Right? What other word would we turn to? And so, praise God, we do have a light, this true light. And so then, like, what, like why does all this matter? Well, this, for a billion reasons, right? But... But then when we are opening up these scriptures and we read words like 2 Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training, for righteousness, then we know that's what he meant. That's what he was saying. He believed these words and they were true. Or Psalm 12, the words of the Lord are pure words. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is true. Proverbs 30, every word of God proves true. Do not add to his words. Numbers 23, God is not man that he should lie or son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? Man, isn't that great? God has said it, and he will do it. John 10, Jesus says, Scripture cannot be broken. Second Peter, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We read these verses that speak to what the Scripture is, and we know this is what they were saying, this is what they meant, this is what's true. Overwhelmingly confirmed, not just because I want it to be, not just because I will it so, because it's frankly just what's what makes sense. It would be foolish not to. So, what do we do with that? I think the call to action here is really a call to faith. I, I can't imagine another response that something like this begs of us. This is verse in Deuteronomy. I want to read it for us. I don't have it on the screen because I just want you to listen to it. It says this. Take a drink. <clears throat> and now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, 
to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your own good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers. And so did you hear this verse? He said, he, everything belongs to him. <clears throat> the heaven, the heavens, heavens, it's all his. Yet where is his heart? It is with you on your fathers and their chosen offspring after them. That is you. You above all peoples as you are this day. Dedicate therefore your heart. This is the, what are we doing with this? Dedicate your heart and be no longer stubborn. Dedicate therefore your heart. Be no longer stubborn. This isn't a message of oppression, friends. This is an invitation of, of freedom, of release, of a dealing with that shame of the things that you think hold you back from relationship, from being a true you. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great and mighty and awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the, for the fatherless and the widow and loves the exile, giving him food and clothing. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. I mean, I don't, I don't know where you stand with the Lord right now. I know in this room, though, there are people that Man, it's shaky. You're not sure. And that's okay. That doesn't scare God, by the way. It's not like your doubt or your little imperfections of things where God's like, oh man, I don't know if I can handle that. But then we have a God who steeps down. It says that, that he left the heavens to come and dwell among you. Why? Because he loves you. And he wanted to enter into that with you. And so God did not preserve this book so that we could be impressed and hear the original intention of a text of thousands of years old, he preserved it so that we could hear his heart. That's what mattered to him. Granted, it is miraculous that we have these words today. Sheerly miraculous. But my prayer for you is that you would trust him. And that through your journey of life, you would open up this book. And you would see it is a true word for you. And that it is been miraculously preserved that you would have hope and eternal life. Amen? That's a good word for us. This Bible is not an idea. It is a message of salvation for those who were far gone and had no hope amongst themselves. But praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ that we had someone who was willing to come and pay that for us that we would have him eternally. Amen? Why don't you all stand up? We'll close the prayer here. And I would just challenge you, if faith is something that escapes you, something that has been hard for your heart to wrap around, start somewhere. 
start somewhere, even if it's right now, that you just open up your heart to him. Sometimes the, ble- the best place to start is just, is just a prayer of, God, I don't, I don't know what all this means, but, but you do. And, and, just a, and just an ask to, to start a journey with him. Maybe that's the best thing you could do in this room of, of the heart that is far from him. To say, God, I don't have it all figured out, but I want to start, man, just cure my unbelief, as Paul says. Start somewhere. Let's pray. God, as we all journey with faith, some of us very firmly rooted in your word and who you are, what that means for us, some of us still working that out. Frankly, some of us in our youth still questioning some things, wanting a firm ground, still searching for our own identities. God, man, root us in you. Root us in these eternal words. And God, from the person in here that that just lacks faith, if they were honest with themselves, God, maybe they would see even a stubbornness about them. God, I pray for a softness there. I pray that they would begin to see that you are not a God of of myths, cleverly devised. You are not a God of absence. You are not a God of distance. You are not a God who, who is waiting to wag the finger as they approach from a far off journey of not living for you, but you are a God who desires to establish them. You are a God who desires to love them that they can be found in you and that a whole life of living apart from you can be remedied in an instant, God, because of what you've done for us. That you are the way maker and that was all impossible. You made it happen. That when the Israelites come and they think for sure the Israelites will destroy us, This river or this lake will swallow us up. God, you made a way. You make the way for us to come into relationship with you. And so, God, when anxiety overwhelms us, when doubt overwhelms us, we can just have a peace. Be released from the burden of having it all figured out, God. You produce faith in us. God, grant that to us. Encourage us. Aid us in this journey of living for you. Amen. Would y'all go today with the Lord's blessing? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. Be gracious unto you. Would the Lord look upon you with his favor and grant to you his everlasting peace. Amen. We'll see y'all next week.